You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is March 2nd, which means it's the first week of Women's History Month. That's right. It's that time of the year when men celebrate women's history by repeating it back to women just a little louder as if we thought of it ourselves. Anyway, on tonight's show, Dr. Seuss is canceled, Governor Cuomo is crashing weddings, and meet Madison Cawthorn, the hot new scandal of the Republican Party. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with the coronavirus vaccine the reason your grandma just reactivated her Tinder. Over the weekend, Johnson & Johnson became the third company to get a vaccine approved for use in the United States. And in even more good news today, it was announced that one of Johnson & Johnson's rivals, the pharma company Merck, will help produce the vaccine as a way to boost supply, which is amazing. Two rival companies teaming up. This is so rare, especially in the pharmaceutical world. I mean, we all watch TV. We've seen those Cialis ads. They've never once said, ask your doctor about Cialis or Viagra. All that matters is we get your rusty old dick working again. And it's because vaccine production is ramping up that President Biden now says America will have a vaccine for every adult by the end of May, two months earlier than he predicted just a few weeks ago, which means you're gonna have to foot back into your genes a lot sooner than you thought. Yeah, you better get working. Now, I don't have that problem because I cut all my jeans up for toilet paper last April. But let's move on to Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York and shaved Geico caveman. He's already spent this week fighting off two accusations of sexual harassment. And now we're finding out about a third. This morning, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo facing new calls for resignation after a third woman has come forward with accusations of sexual harassment. Anna Rook telling the New York Times the governor tried to kiss her at a New York City wedding reception in 2019. And then sharing this photograph, she says, was captured on her cell phone that night by a friend. Rook saying that when Governor Cuomo put his hand on her bare lower back, she, quote, promptly removed his hand with my hand. According to the paper, the governor remarked that she seemed aggressive and placed his hands on her cheeks. He asked if he could kiss her. Sweet Jesus, man, what are you doing? I mean, on the one hand, asking women for consent before you kiss them is what you're supposed to do, but the other part of consent is waiting for them to answer. You don't just grab them by the face like a bear yanking on a beehive. I mean, look at this photo. How can you not tell that you're making this person uncomfortable? If you're doing something to someone that turns them into the emoji, you have done something wrong. And what's so brazen about it is that he's doing it right in front of everybody in the middle of a wedding. So now I wanna know, was he doing this the whole night? You know, are the bride and groom gonna be looking at their wedding photos like, Oh, honey, here's the picture of you smearing the cake on my face. Oh, and there's the one of Governor Cuomo licking it off. And by the way, it's not like this happened in like 1992 and he could be like, well, it was a different time. This was in 2019. If you're a public official doing this kind of thing after the Me Too movement, either you just can't help yourself or you're so dumb you shouldn't be in office anyway. So in light of these allegations, 
Cuomo is now facing even more calls to resign. Although if these allegations prove anything, it's that Cuomo doesn't go away when you want him to. But let's move on, because while Governor Cuomo clearly hasn't adapted to the changing times, one of your favorite authors from childhood is trying to. Breaking news, the organization that preserves the legacy of author and illustrator Dr. Seuss says it will stop publishing six titles because of racist imagery. Dr. Seuss Enterprises says the books portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. The six books being banned include And to Think, That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, If I Ran the Zoo, Miguel Agat's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. There are some examples of racist imagery in those books. For example, there's a character that's just described as a Chinese man who eats with sticks. And the depiction of that character has a pointed hat, slanted, slit eyes. In another book, two men said to be from Africa are shown shirtless, shoeless, wearing grass skirts as they carry exotic animals. Wow, okay. So what? We're just gonna cancel Dr. Seuss books just because they're racist? Uh, then what are the racist kids gonna read? Huh? You didn't think of that, did you? You know the real problem with Dr. Seuss? Is that all of his made-up words sound like they could be racial slurs. I mean, a zelf on a shelf? The nubbards in the cupboards? Shit, I don't know what that means, but if a white person calls me a nubbard, we're throwing down. And look, I know that this thing was blowing up and it was trending all over Twitter, but there's always gonna be people on Twitter telling you that this is the end of civilization because fanning the flames of culture wars is how they get attention. But let's be honest about what's happening here. An organization is making a decision on its own that they don't wanna be associated with their own outdated and offensive imagery. That's not being canceled. That's something that companies and organizations do all the time. Like at some point, Coca-Cola was like, hey, maybe putting cocaine in our drink is harmful to the public. Maybe we should stop doing that. Nobody called that cancel culture. And despite what everyone tells you, everyone does this all the time, including CPAC. Yeah, the home of freedom! Just a couple of weeks ago, they canceled a speaker for his anti-Semitic views. Oh, but I guess that was just them looking out for the brand. Yeah, it only becomes cancel culture when it's something you disagree with. But still, there may be room for compromise here. Like maybe instead of getting rid of the books completely, they can just update the imagery. For example, take that offensive drawing of the two African men and put it in a Tucker Carlson thought bubble. That way we all understand, ah, this is racist. Let's move on now to our main story. The other sexual harassment scandal taking over the political world right now. Also tonight, serious questions are swirling around the youngest member of con- Congress, an up-and-coming Republican with an increasingly high profile. He is considered a rising star in the Republican Party, but Congressman Madison Cawthorn's past and the political persona he has cultivated is littered with dark allegations. Cawthorn faced numerous allegations of sexual harassment while attending Patrick Henry College in Virginia just four years ago. Caitlin Coulter went to school with Cawthorn and said she was taken on what he called a fun drive. His MO was to take vulnerable women out on these rides with him in the car and to make advances. Cawthorn asked her about her purity ring and her sexual experiences. Coulter says she felt something was off and shut down the conversation. He got really upset and 
he whipped the car around and started going back to campus at 70, 80 miles an hour on these one-lane roads. Um, and it was it was really scary. There was a lot of sexual innuendo, Lee Petrie told CNN. It got really uncomfortable walking to and from class. He would yell out, are you ready to take that fun drive today? Oh, damn. That guy doesn't sound fun at all. This guy was apparently sexually harassing women while driving like a crazy person. It's like if Mario Kart let you play as Harvey Weinstein. And just to be clear, this wasn't just making a few people uncomfortable. No, Cawthorn reportedly kissed women by force, put his hands up their skirts, and pulled one girl onto his lap and put his finger between her legs. In fact, it got so bad that RAs at the school started warning students to stay away from him. And you know you're doing something wrong when you're in the same category as STDs and alcohol poisoning. But the question you may be asking is, who is Madison Cawthorn? And how did he go from college creep to congressman creep? Well, let's find out in another episode of Fringe Watching. One year ago, Madison Cawthorn was not expected to be the next congressional representative from North Carolina but he narrowly beat a more established conservative in the Republican primary by falsely smearing her as a never-Trumper. Because you see, at this point, never-Trumper is the worst insult that you can say to a Republican. It goes expert, Prius driver, and then never-Trumper. That's the Republican version of the N-word. You never Trump what you call me. You take that back while you don't use that word on me. Okay, but you don't like Trump sometimes. But what really propelled Cawthorn into office was his compelling personal story, even if it wasn't 100% his. Fresh questions about his own account of the car accident that left him wheelchair bound in 2014. He was my brother, my best friend. He, he, he leaves me in a car to die in a fiery tomb. Bradley Ledford, Cawthorn's friend and the driver of the car, telling the Washington Post that Cawthorn's accounting of the accident was not true. Cawthorn's own parents undercutting their son's story too, saying the driver of the car rescued him. That accident went on to be the core part of the narrative Cawthorn weaved about himself as he ran for Congress. He planned on serving his country in the Navy with a nomination to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. But all that changed in the spring of 2014 when tragedy struck. But in this 2017 deposition related to the accident obtained by CNN, Cawthorn admitted that he was rejected by the Academy before the accident. So, this guy got rejected by the Naval Academy, then got into a car crash, and then claimed the crash was why he got rejected? Well, you know what they say, when life gives you lemons, you blame the lemons for everything and you hope no one checks. And look, man, this is a horrible thing that Cawthorn experienced, but it's tragic enough on its own. And it's also genuinely inspiring that he came back from it, which is probably why it's so weird that he felt the need to lie about things like his friend abandoning him to die. I mean, dude rescued him from a car and in return, he threw him under the bus. And once people began digging into the rest of Cawthorn's story, they began finding lies everywhere. For instance, he claimed he turned down Princeton and Harvard. That was not true. He claimed to be a successful business owner, even though his supposed investment company reported zero income and had only one employee, himself. He even claimed repeatedly to be training for the 2020 Paralympics 
despite never being an elite athlete. Something an actual Paralympian compared to, quote, a kid saying they wanna play in the NBA when they're on the fourth grade basketball team, end quote. Which would obviously be ridiculous. I mean, no fourth grader could play in the NBA, except maybe for the Pistons. I mean, they, they need help. So, Madison Cawthorn has basically lied about every major event in his life. And he's lucky that he's in politics because there's no other career where you can be caught lying that much about your resume and still be allowed to keep your job. So, instead of attending Princeton or Harvard, Cawthorn went to a conservative Christian college where he led a squad known on campus as the Douche Crew, which is impressive, especially when you think about how much competition there is for that name on a college campus. You know, it's like working at a hedge fund and being known as the guy with the coke problem. But after earning mostly Ds, Cawthorn dropped out after only one semester to go and see the world. This 2017 Instagram post from a visit to Adolf Hitler's vacation home in Germany, the Eagle's Nest, where Cawthorn refers to Hitler as the Führer. Posting the vacation house of the Führer. Seeing the Eagle's Nest has been on my bucket list for a while. It did not disappoint. I'm definitely not a Nazi. Uh, I'm not a white supremacist. Okay, you know you messed up if you need to follow your Instagram post with, I'm definitely not a Nazi. I mean, nobody's posting kitten pictures like, just to be clear, I definitely think the Holocaust was bad. Meow. And it's not even that he visited Hitler's vacation home, so much as how he wrote about it. He called it the Fuhrer's house. I mean, that's an extra level of respect when you're using Hitler's preferred pronouns. I mean, he even included the two dots over the U. What is that, the, the umlauts? Yo, that takes effort. I don't even know how you do that. I think you need to buy like a special keyboard. I can barely find the colon. Where are you finding the umlauts for Hitler? But maybe the strangest part of this post is that he said, quote, it did not disappoint. The only way to make this post worse was if it did disappoint. Just got to the eagle's nest. Bummer, not that Hitlery. So this was a little embarrassing, but it didn't stop Cawthorn from getting the ultimate stamp of approval. Where's Madison? Where is Madison? Is he here? Madison Cawthorn, a real star. You're gonna be a star of the party. He rose to national prominence and then gained national attention at this summer's Republican convention. When I'm elected this November, I'll be the youngest member of Congress in over 200 years. And if you don't think young people can change the world, then you just don't know American history. George Washington was 21 when he received his first military commission. Abe Lincoln, 22 when he first ran for office. And my personal favorite, James Madison, was just 25 years old when he signed the Declaration of Independence. Yes, that, my friends, is incredible. Or it would be if James Madison had actually signed the Declaration of Independence, but he didn't. I guess Cawthorn is so into lying that he's padding other people's resumes now? I mean, sooner or later, this dude's gonna get his alternate realities completely mixed up. And let's not forget Thomas Jefferson, who left me for dead in that car accident. And please, don't get me wrong, this isn't the biggest deal in the world. In fact, I'm kind of impressed that Cawthorn picked the one founding father who didn't sign the Declaration of Independence. Look at those signatures, look at all those signatures. They were passing that thing around like an office birthday card. And so, Madison Cawthorn made history as the youngest member of Congress ever. 
And he celebrated this milestone in American democracy by immediately trying to undo American democracy. My first act as a member of Congress will be to object to the Electoral College certification of the 2020 election. If you don't start supporting election integrity, I'm coming after you. Madison Cawthorn's coming after you. Everybody's coming after you. Get on the phone, call your congressman, and feel free, you can lightly threaten them. Yes, just a few weeks before riots has stormed at the Capitol building, Madison Cawthorn was telling people to lightly threaten their congressman which I guess is when you say you're gonna kill a dude and then throw in some funny memes just to balance it out. But you know, in many ways, the Republican Party couldn't have asked for a better star to push their lie. Because unlike the Paralympics, this is something he's actually been training for his whole life. So that's Madison Cawthorn. He claims the election was stolen, lies about everything in his life, and has dubious opinions about Nazis and an alleged history of sexual assault. What I'm saying is, as soon as this guy can get a fake ID saying he's 35, oh, my friends, he's gonna be president. All right, when we come back, Representative Adam Kinzinger will be joining us on the show to talk about taking a stand against the president of his own party. You don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke to Republican Congressman of Illinois, Adam Kinzinger. We talked about breaking from his party to oppose Donald Trump and what he sees as the future of the GOP. Congressman Kinzinger, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. (laughs) Thanks, good to be with you. So first questions first, where do people go to find a new family? Because you were famously thrust into the news when your family wrote you a letter, not only saying that you had betrayed Donald Trump and you had betrayed them, but you had joined the devil's army. Quite a letter to get from some of your family members. Yeah, it was a little surprising, you know? And, uh, but so I, I look at it and say, look, I have great family, some closer that, you know, may disagree with me that aren't going to send me a devil's army conscription form. But uh, yeah, it was pretty crazy. But I'm glad it got out there. I didn't release it. She sent it so far and wide, actually, that it, the reporter was able to find it. But, you know, it kind of shows people what's going on in families today. But your own family thinks that you have betrayed Donald Trump and you are betraying the Republican Party by saying that Donald Trump didn't in fact win the election and there was no giant steal, AKA the big lie. If a Republican cannot convince his Republican family of these things, what hope is there for America? Well, I do think there's hope. And if you think about it, look at how long it took to really go from when Donald Trump announced he came down the escalator, he had like 10% support. Everybody thought he was a joke. And then Over time, when he was talking, he eventually kind of led to this movement that we have. So it's going to take some time to pull people out of that. But I think up to this point, we've had no competing narrative. You know, if you don't hear anybody say the election wasn't stolen and 74 million people that voted for Trump weren't disenfranchised, they just were outnumbered. uh, Until somebody says that aggressively, you're going to believe it. And that's what's important right now is just to tell people the truth. You know, there's this culture war brewing here where it's all about owning the other side. And I still want to go out and fight for principles. And that's where I think the pivot needs to happen that's actually going to save not just the Republican Party, but the country, is if we actually start talking about policy principle again, how to bring people up from poverty, you know, what defending the country means. Those are the kinds of things that I think Americans are actually desperate for. They're just not the loudest ones tweeting. When we look at that now, I mean, America is going through one of its toughest periods. I mean, the world is. We've never seen anything like it. Um, 
Joe Biden is trying to pass his $1.9 trillion relief bill uh, for COVID. There's been a lot of back and forth on this. You are a congressperson. I would love to know from your perspective why you're opposed to Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion plan. Yeah, look, there was there was no effort to reach out. I'd never had a conversation with anybody in the White House about it. No effort to say, what does it take to bring on board? I'm desperate to have a compromise on this, and I'm hoping that when it comes back from the Senate, there'll be some changes, actually making sure that we're giving the amount of money that these states need and not just writing a blank check, and that some of the money towards uh, education, for instance, is actually done this year. A lot of it's next year. And there actually needs to be more money for for medicine and research. So look, I'm one of the ones that's eager to say, let's do this. Let's, let's work on things together and that we both just have to be willing to do it. And so I'm not going to blame you know, the president for not reaching out to Republicans. They make a decision. But I do think if somehow it gets blocked up in the Senate, we, we have an opportunity to get this done. The bill has quite a few proposals. It touches on everything from, you know, uh, raising the minimum wage, which is now probably out of the out of the conversation, you know, to getting funding to people who work in restaurants and bars and making sure that people get vaccinated and providing PPP, et cetera. What would you change in that bill? What do you think it's missing if they had come and spoken to you? Yeah, I don't know if it's missing anything. I do think we can come to a compromise on the minimum wage, for instance. I, like, I'm for increasing the minimum wage. I just think doing it at this moment, right, to 15 bucks, you know, over a short period when, when businesses are struggling is the wrong time. So I would like to see an increase. But on things like opening schools, there's over $300 billion that goes to that, but most of it doesn't go in until next year. And you look at things like vaccine researches for the future. You look at things like helping hospitals now. And then the fact, you know, Illinois, for instance, which has had this huge systemic problem of fiscal mismanagement, just gets a ton of money from the federal government. Mm-hmm. I want that to be more based on need instead of just based on number. When, when you look at that, though, America has a history of under preparing for these situations. You know, if, if you go back, every time there's like a stimulus bill, every every time it falls short of the mark. And in hindsight, economists go, ah, we just didn't spend enough money. We didn't give the people enough money. I mean, 70% of Americans are saying, we want this bill. We want these checks. We need this help. Don't you think it's better to err on the side of caution and just go like, well, let's maybe overspend, but let's get the economy going and let's get people out of their houses and let's get people eating again. Yeah, look, I think it's a good point to make. And I think, you know, for the last year, we've been doing that. There have been a lot of pretty sizable amounts of money we've been spending on things like the payroll protection program, et cetera. But look, if you want to reach out to me for that input, I'm happy to chat with the administration about it. But they didn't. And the numbers I saw were like, hey, yeah, we're going to spend a lot of money, but we still have to understand what we're doing with it because this money has to be paid back at some point. So Again, my hope is with the Senate, you know, if it hits a bottleneck there, we can have an opportunity for bipartisan. And I'm still eager on bipartisan things like infrastructure going forward because this country deserves people that can have a conversation like you and I are on this issue without just hating each other. Uh, My personal opinion has been that, you know, I think the two-party system will in some way, shape, or form end up destroying America. That's my personal view because I think it doesn't give people enough room to be more than just one of two sides. I don't think there's two sides to anything. Right now, though, the Republican Party's in an interesting place. Are you a conservative and do you have these beliefs or do you raise a flag that says Donald Trump? And it feels like more Republicans are saying, forget Republican, we are Trump. Where do you then go from there? 
Yeah, so that's what the battle is right now. And I think that's going to be, we'll have a good idea over summer. I think Donald Trump is going to continue to be lessened as every day goes on. Because Americans, we have a, we don't always solve challenges, but we move on from them and we move on to the next president. So that's why I started countryfirst.com with a 1ST. is just like, especially for Republicans, independents, and even Democrats that say we need a healthy Republican Party to have a place to go to fight for the narrative of the Republican Party. Because Tell you what, the two-party system won't destroy the country if you have a healthy opportunity for debate and an open tent. We should have people that disagree in the Republican Party as the Democrats do in their party. Well, um, you are in for the right of your life. It is going to be extremely vicious. It is going to be um, uh, extreme, as you've seen from within your own family. And so uh, we'll be watching. And um, yeah, good luck to you versus Donald Trump. Thank you. Well, you know what? Some things you got to put it all on the line for, and I'm willing to. I hear you there. Thank you so much for taking the time, Congressman. You bet. Thanks again to Congressman Kinzinger for joining us on the show. When we come back, the amazing Her will be my guest, and we'll talk about the Grammys, the Oscars, and how she's taken over the world. So don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Grammy Award-winning musician Her. We talked about making music during the pandemic, being shortlisted for an Oscar, and who the person is behind the mysterious name. Her, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, It is an absolute pleasure having you on because you have become just the soundtrack. Not the soundtrack of life, not the soundtrack of the pandemic, just the soundtrack. That is what I feel like when I think of her. Before we get into the music itself, though, I would love to know the story behind her because it is one of the most unique artist names I've ever come across. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Um, Yeah, you know, um, I've just always loved music since I was a little girl. It's always kind of been a given to me just just doing music and um, I got signed very young, but I was making this this very honest music um, in high school that kind of just represented what I like to call the evolution of woman and me becoming a young woman and going through different things and, you know, changing and, and vulnerability and um, I, I guess, you know, even if it wasn't that deep, it was always that deep for me. So I was right. writing this music that was kind of heavy um, and uh, created this EP, Volume One. And um, I, I really wanted the the project to just be the cover of the project to just be a silhouette. Uh, where nobody knew what I looked like or, you know, anything about me. And I, and I wanted to have everything revealed in the music and not what we sometimes focus on with social media, because um, I'm, I'm really about the music and that's where it came from. Yeah, I feel like more than most artists, you really, really, really focused on not just the music, but on keeping the music separate from your life. And it feels like it's really intentional where you've gone, I don't want you to know the person behind this. I want you to know what the person is giving you. Why, why was that such a big deal for you? And is that, is that a correct assertion? Absolutely. It's a big deal for me because I think music is, is the foundation and music is, is the main part of it. We get so caught up in what everybody else is doing. And then sometimes we get disappointed because at the end of the day, we, you know, we're all human. We are all right. flawed. We all go through things and we all have stuff we deal with outside of our art. And I really just wanted to focus on the art and, um, you know, have a kind of a sense of privacy, I guess. But, um, you know, the music is, is the message. It makes you want to fall in love. It makes you, you know, sad. It tells you what's going on. And there's just a lot of things that music does. And I think we forgot about that. We forgot about the substance that is the art of music. And, and that's what I'm about. You remind me of um, some of the greatest artists of, of like my parents' generation where 
you, you can make beautiful music about anything, but there are moments where you take your time to make a song about the pain that people are experiencing in life. And, you know, one of the most famous songs in that regard is I Can't Breathe. You know, a song that came out during the heights of protests in America, during the heights of many people's pain in America. Um, you wrote another song recently about Fred Hampton, you know, for Judas and the Black Messiah, another song nominated. And all of these songs are really painful, but at the same time, it feels like you're trying to inspire us to something. You know, it, it, it doesn't feel like it's a hopeless song. It feels like it's hopeful despite the stories ending the way that they did. When you're making that music, do you, do you think about the thing first or does, you know, does, does the event inspire you? I'd love to know what that process is or how it comes about for you because it really connects with people. Oh, thank you. It, it really depends. You know, when it, when it came to, to like a song like I Can't Breathe, it was the heat of the moment. It was like, okay, I'm literally looking outside my window in New York City and seeing a huge crowd of people protesting. And I'm, I'm seeing all these things on the news, on social media. It's everywhere we look. And it, it's great that it's everywhere we look now because now there's kind of this awakening, I think, going right. on. And um, uh, and a lot is being exposed and we've had time to be still. And so, you know, I've had time to be still and look at the world around me and 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 really sit with this pain and this kind of anxiety like, OK, you know, some of the lyrics are like, how do we cope when we don't love each other? What is a gun to a man that surrenders? You know, how do we judge off the color? And, you know, all, all of these things that, that I, I said, it really was just like, why? Why, why, why? And, and right. why do we have to live in fear. Why does this keep happening? There's songs like, you know, from from the whole other time, you know, back in the day, there's songs that Sly and the Family Stone were writing, Marvin Gaye and, and people like that were writing that are still relevant to today. And it's kind of like continuing that thought of like, why is this still happening um, in that pain? And I think the goal is always to make people hopeful and mm -hmm. um, to, to also educate through music and, and let people know what's going on and that we have a responsibility to try to make a change. And um, I'll never forget a call that I received from somebody and they said that their 70-year-old uh, Jewish father uh, listened to my song and, and told the, the person that called me and they were like, yo, have you heard this song by this girl? It really made me think differently. And wow. at that moment, yeah, at that moment I knew, oh my gosh, this is so much bigger than me expressing my feelings on a page. Now it's it's uh, changing the way that people think, you right. know, and the way that people see things and that's what music is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I can do that, um, you know, it, it, just off of what I feel and the right. responsibility that I now feel to express what's going on today. As much as you maintain your anonymity and your and your privacy, you also share yourself in one of the most vulnerable ways I've ever come across. You know, we're used to seeing artists on stage. We're used to seeing these big, lavish performances. But once the pandemic struck, we saw her in a completely different way. You started hosting really intimate performances, you know, from a room in your house, whether it was on Instagram Live or, or whether it was like a Zoom performance. And it felt like you were sharing a different side of yourself. It, it felt like you were sharing the pandemic with us and then your thoughts about what we were experiencing in, in real time. What inspired that? And were you ever worried about like almost being too vulnerable and not being like prepared? You know, a lot, a lot of people have the veneer, but you were just like, no, this is me, let's do this. 
You know, in the beginning, I was like, oh, because my one of my first times going on Instagram Live was in the pandemic. And I'm in the house with, you know, my hair in a messy bun and just <laughs> my plain old hoodie. And I had just moved. So the room was completely empty. And, you know, there was all this great reverb. So I was like, let's just get into it. Let me just sing. <laughs> Let me just sing for the people. But it was it was honestly a way for me to stay connected and keep people updated on what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do and right. in my artistry and my create my creativity. But also boredom. You know, I, I really love music genuinely and, and wanted an opportunity to, to be able to still do my thing. And I think Instagram Live was a good place to do it. And I started a series called Girls With Guitars. And it was like, now I can jam with other people on live, which is even better. And it turned into something great. So, you know, it was just something I wanted to do. Good luck for the Grammys. Good luck for the rest of the journey because it's gonna be, it's gonna be a crazy exciting one. And um, I'm excited to see where it takes you. Thank you so much. It was so great speaking with you. Take care. Don't forget, people, Judas and the Black Messiah is in theaters and streaming now on HBO Max, and the soundtrack featuring her's song, Fight For You, is available right now. Right, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, as you know, March is Women's History Month, so please consider supporting an organization called She Should Run. It's a nonpartisan, nonprofit working to increase the number of women considering a run for public office. Now, by supporting She Should Run, you are helping women from all political leanings, ethnicities, sexual identities, and backgrounds to see themselves as future candidates. If you're able to, go to the link below and donate whatever you can. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, if you're attending a wedding, the salad fork is on your left and Governor Cuomo is groping you on your right. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 